Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Michael Petrie graduated from Louisiana State University. His uh, double major was history and creative writing. In 2002, he joined the Marines. He deployed twice to Iraq, attaining the rank of captain before leaving the service in 2010 to get his MBA at Loyola. He lives in New Orleans. He writes about his experiences in a novel, critically acclaimed novel Fives and Twenty Fives. And in part, this is what he writes, In tribal societies, warriors fight in full view of their families. When a warrior kills, his mother watches him do it. There are no mysteries, no secrets. In modern war, nations dress their sons and daughters in elaborate costumes, send them to the other side of the world. Excuse me, uh, to witness and at times commit horrifying acts of violence on an industrial scale. When a soldier comes home, his mother has no idea what he's done. Mr. Beatry says he wants to shine some light in the dark corners of our recent history and facilitate the reintroduction of, to, of families to sons and daughters. And most importantly, he hopes this story brings greater attention to the suffering of the Iraqi people. Michael Petrie, welcome to Access Utah. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, so uh, you say that uh, you write that the Marine Corps is self-selecting. Why did the Marine Corps, I guess, self-select you? Why did you join? Uh, well, I was a senior at LSU, and I really had no uh, thought that I would join the service. But it was just—it was uh, the fall of 2001, um, so right during my last semester of university. The September 11th attacks occurred, and I had gravitated during college to people who were in the Marines, uh, reservists, or those in ROTC. They just sort of became my natural friends. And after 9-11, I kind of understood that uh, this was a war and that my friends would be going. And I was 21, and I was fit, and I was adventurous, and it just sort of seemed the thing to do. Um, and I really wish I had a better explanation than that. Mm. Um, it felt like something I had to go and see. I think that describes a lot of people at that time. You know, the, it does. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you've, you've also written that, uh, you know, people who join the Corps, I guess other branches of the military, generally are, are under, under no illusions. You know, you don't think this is going to be just a video game. You, you know you're going to be getting into something very difficult and, and perhaps life-altering. Uh, was that the case with you? Certainly today, I don't think anyone who's joined since 2003 has any illusions about what they're getting into. Um, I don't know what, when I joined in, 2000, in, uh, in the fall of 2001 if I really knew what I was getting into, um, but I, I loved it. I absolutely loved being in, the, being in the Marine Corps and being a Marine. It was a, it's the honor of my life to have been associated with uh, the Marines and, and those people with whom I served. What was in the same breath as some of these people. Oh, excuse me. What what, uh, what did you love about it? Uh, the easy camaraderie of it. Um, I was uh, I was having a, a lunch in uh, New York City a couple weeks ago with another veteran writer, another former Marine officer, Phil Cly, who wrote uh, Redeployment, which won the National Book Award this past year. Uh, and I mentioned Phil and I had seen each other at a book festival in Tennessee a couple months earlier. And I was joking that I was talking about my wife, but I, I wasn't wearing a wedding ring. And Phil's immediate sort of comment to me was, hey, where's your wedding ring if you're married? It was, yeah. a, it was a sort of terse, like, hey, you better not be fooling around on your book tour. When in reality, I wear my wedding ring on my watch band, which is something that's common to a lot of veterans, hmm. uh, not liking metal on their fingers. And I just forgot my watch at the hotel room. 
but the way Phil sort of immediately, I, I mentioned this to, mentioned this to him at lunch, how much I liked this, but he, there was this immediate holding your friends to standards and holding your friends to account, which I loved about the Marines. Um, uh, oh yeah, excuse that me. You're with pe- you're with people who really expected the most of you, and 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 held you to it. Sounds like sounds like brothers, and that's how often uh, you know you describe each other. I think brothers and sisters. I mean, mm-hmm. some yeah. of the best Marines I served with were women, mm-hmm. um, which is a, another common thread these days. It's sort of a a new veteran narrative. Um, yeah, uh, probably the the best single Marine I ever served with was uh, now a female major. Um, my wife tells me that I travel the world collecting little sisters. Uh-huh. Uh, that I have one big sister. Her name is Major Autumn Swinford. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I do miss it, but I'm never that far away from it. Yeah. Oh, do you have your book with you? I do. I wonder if you just. Uh, I think the uh, the the first page is pretty gripping. Um, it gets us into, uh, and one of the things in the book is, uh, as much as a reader can, it you know takes takes the reader there to what it, what it's really like. So I wonder. Uh, it's the first chapter called "The Marine I Knew," and uh, just that first page, and then over the second page until you wake up, or at least the the lieutenant wakes up. Okay. I'm running through the desert. I know it by the sound of my breath. Caustic air scours my lungs as I settle into a panting cadence opposite the rhythm of the rifle bouncing against my chest. My flak jacket doesn't quite fit. The straps float an inch off my shoulders, bringing 30 pounds of armor plates down hard against my spine each time a boot heel strikes hard packs dirt. The Kevlar around my neck traps sweat and grime that froths into an abrasive paste. I feel patches of skin behind my ears start to rub away. The afternoon sun washes out my vision, other senses compensate. Desiccated shrubs, strewn with garbage bags and empty plastic bottles, crunch under my boots. Farther up my body, the gear clipped to my webbing clatters like a tinker's cart. The tourniquet I always have in easy reach of my left hand taps against my uniform blouse. Thirty-round magazines rattle in the ammunition pouches around my waist. Thirty-round capacity, but never loaded with more than 28, I know. Save the spring. Prevent jams. It all moves with me in a way so familiar, so exact, that for a moment I think this could only be real. My eyes adjust, and I see the convoy in front of me. Four Humvees and two seven-ton trucks. I understand suddenly, and with queasy certainty, why I'm running. I need to warn them about the pressure switch, hidden in a crack in the road. It's a length of surgical tubing stitched through with copper wire. The driver won't see it. They don't have a chance. The lead Humvee rolls over the crack. The front tire collapses the tubing. Wires touch. Voltage from a hidden battery reaches the length of detonation cord wrapped around artillery shells, buried with jugs of gasoline and soap chips. I wave my arms, a heartbeat before the whole nasty serpent shrieks to life and fill my lungs to cry out. And then, like always, I wake up. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty gripping. Now I understand you you weren't on a road crew like the the, the set in the novel, but you had close friends who. I wasn't on I wasn't on a road repair team. I was not a combat engineer. I was a communications officer, though I had been on convoys like that. Yeah. Um, no, a very close friend of mine. Uh, his whole job in Iraq for a deployment was filling potholes. This was sort of. This would have been 2005 before the practice became sort of codified, and uh, we had the equipment sets built to deal with that. 
and it was sort of a catch as catch can mission set. Like, hey, take take a truck, take some uh, take take a bunch of Humvees, take some cement and some Marines, and go fill potholes. Uh, and the thing was, if you were an insurgent planning an IED in Iraq, you were the point at which you were going to get caught and seen was when you were digging in the hole. Everything else could be done very quickly. I mean, they would implant the main charge, which is an artillery shell sometimes. Sometimes it was a, a bundle of homemade explosives. Someone would plant the, the main charge. Someone would plant the detonation device. Uh, someone would plant the trigger. And each one of these pieces could be individually emplaced uh, in about five or six seconds. So they could just do it quickly and be on the road. Uh, so the, the only time-consuming part about putting an IED in the highway was digging a hole. So they just stopped digging holes and uh, started putting them in potholes. So anytime my friend Ed was out on a convoy, there was you know, a dozen potholes in an afternoon. Uh, and every single one of them had a bomb in some stage of emplacement. Um, maybe the main charge was there, but the trigger wasn't. Maybe all the pieces of the bomb were there, but the, the last guy hadn't come through to arm it. Um so it's a pretty hair-raising job. Well, it sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> sweet, I don't know, terrifying, nerve-wracking work. I think at one point you asked your friend how, how many of the potholes were you know, filled with an explosive device. Yeah, he's like, oh, um, all of them. <laughs> yeah. And this is, the, this is over the course of a whole deployment, so we're talking hundreds of potholes. Um, but he's, like you say, it's terrifying. But I, I say this sort of, I don't know if it's just, um, looking back on it, it's just fatalistic. Uh, it, it was just something everybody knew. And after a while, and it, it wasn't terrifying all the time. Um, sometimes it was funny. Sometimes it was just work. Um, but there was always the cloud sort of around you that you knew that what you were doing was serious. And also you were, you were a U.S. Marine uh, in a war zone surrounded by other U.S. Marines who were your friends. And you, uh, you were never so scared <laughs> that your friends were with you, you know? It yeah. was I don't want to get the impression that it's a very professional organization full of very professional people doing their job um, and, and really not thinking too much more than that about it. Yeah. What's, uh, tell me about the title, Fives and Twenty Fives. What does that refer to? Fives and Twenty Fives, um, it was a, uh, an expression we used in Iraq and uh, at home later. Uh, it refers to a procedure Marines used on convoys keep themselves safe from hidden roadside bombs. So if you're on a convoy and someone in the lead vehicle spots something up ahead, some disturbed earth, uh, a bag of something sitting in the middle of the highway, something that didn't look quite right, like it could be a hidden bomb, and you need to halt the convoy to investigate, the first thing everyone would do would be their 5s and 25s drill. Uh, so everyone would stay in their vehicles and scan around the wheels five meters to make sure they weren't parked next to a bomb. Uh, and when everyone was satisfied that they weren't parked next to a bomb, they would get out and scan 25 meters around the whole convoy to try to create a safe lane of travel. Because a bomb within five meters of your armored Humvee is going to cut right through the armor and kill everybody in the truck. Uh, and a bomb within 25 meters is going to be threatening to uh, dismounted troops trying to investigate the road ahead. So it was all about establishing safe spaces around you. Uh, and it became this expression that we use all the time in all kinds of circumstances. We would tell each other, hey, watch your fives and 25s, which meant, you know, protect yourself. And it meant something, it meant on a convoy, it meant watch out for IEDs. 
at home in between the in the in between deployments admit don't get so drunk that you can't drive home um, uh, you've had too much to drink in fact you know? I, I think you witnessed a, a pair of marines where, where this uh, i guess where that phrase was uttered uh, back home uh, more than once yeah in a bar yeah um, <laughs> and a buddy of mine i was talking about this the other day so don't don't forget to mention the uh, the good things about it so it was it got two two marines in a bar, one of them's too drunk, and his buddy was a hay watcher, five and twenty-five. But the good things too is if there was a, uh, there's a group of pretty girls in the bar, someone would say, "Hey, fives and twenty-fives, <laughs> <laughs> meaning scan around. Don't miss, don't miss that. Don't, don't miss, don't miss the good things too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Michael Petrie. He uh, lives in New Orleans. Uh, he uh, before uh, 9-11 had graduated from Louisiana State University. He was a double major in history and creative writing. In 2002, he joined the Marines, deployed twice to Iraq. He was a captain there. Uh, he left the service in 2010 to get his MBA at Loyola, and uh, now he's out with a critically acclaimed uh, novel about Iraq, uh, Fives and Twenty-Fives. Michael Petrie, my guest uh, for the hour. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. I want to refer back to the passage I picked out from a, a passage that you wrote, Publicity Materials, about how in tribal societies, warriors fight in full view of their families. So everybody's there, everybody witnesses what the warrior is doing. But in modern war, as you say, nations dress up their sons and daughters in elaborate costumes, send them to the other side of the world to witness, and at times commit horrifying acts of violence on an industrial scale. And when a soldier returns home, his mother has no idea what he's, what he's done. There, the, it, it, that's an interesting juxtaposition of, of, uh, of war. And it was an interesting experience of war. Um, we, this, we're, we're emerging from 12 years of continuous conflict in which, we've, which has been fought entirely by an all-volunteer military. That, this has never happened in the history of the United States. We, every other long war we've fought has been done by a conscription. We have a much smaller military now, much more professional, and which is a good thing. But it also means that we've disconnected the military experience from society at large. And it's so idiosyncratic and so isolated. And sometimes trying to tell stories of Iraq to friends who want to know about Iraq, I, we have to, I have to teach them the whole language <laughs> that we used. It, it, it's such an isolated experience. And coming back home and go, going to graduate school, um, trying to explain to people what I'd done, I just stopped trying. It was not something I could explain. The experience is so separate. Um, but I would still get that question that I thought was extinct, that I thought people had stopped asking and, and, and thought better of, which is, uh, did you kill anyone? I would still get that question. And uh, my response, I wouldn't answer that question, but my response would be, well, if I did, you paid me to. Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're, when democracies go to war, the entire electorate must bear the burden of it in some way, morally, material, materially, financially. And, and decoupling you know, the body politic from the experience of war can be a dangerous thing. I guess is what I was trying to say with that passage. Yeah. So do you, you think, I expect, that, that, that decoupling 
uh, has not been repaired. It, in fact, maybe even getting worse. Well, I mean, it's a new phenomenon. And, and again, a, all, an all-volunteer professional military is a good thing. I think uh, I was watching some footage of Marines in Afghanistan a couple weeks ago. Um, and this is, I think, footage from 2012, so it's a few years old. But nonetheless, the Marines on the ground in Afghanistan, I mean, we're talking about guys who've been through three and four deployments, speak a bit of Arabic, speak a bit of Pashtun. Um, they understand counterinsurgency warfare. This is as good a Marine Corps as there's been in 50 years or there will be for another 50 years. We've reached this peak level of, of uh, effectiveness for the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. military generally. Um, and you couldn't do that with a conscript army or a conscript military. It just wouldn't be possible. But the, 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 the downside is, yeah, we suddenly now the public doesn't know what we do, and they need to, and they should. And I don't know if there's a solution to that or if I'm the one to offer it. Hmm. Um, but it is an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it does seem to be, I don't know, for, for many, I guess many don't even think about it. Um, hopefully when returning veterans come home, you know, you, you honor their service and honor, honor them, honor you. Um, but, but it does seem to be a disconnect. With that, too, and speaking of honoring service, again, these are professionals who know what they did and know what they didn't do and know the ways in which they succeeded and know the ways in which they didn't. Um, and by just saying, thanks for your service, you're a hero, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't do much for a veteran. Mm-hmm. That doesn't do much for a professional who knows that he's not a hero. Um, and when I came home, I mean, I, I was with Iraqis quite a lot, and one of the narratives One of the narrators of the novel is an Iraqi guy who was uh, working as an interpreter. And uh, those are the guys everyone loved the most. And and also the guys who frustrated everyone the most, the local Iraqis who were working for you as interpreters and and, uh, and other capacities. But when I would come home and people would say, hey, you're a hero, great job, all I wanted to tell them was, hey, um, my Iraqi friends are still back there and they're in danger, right? we, we did not, people who risked everything to try to create a safe, democratic, secular functioning democracy um, in Iraq sort of paid the ultimate price uh, while I got to come home and, and spend some time on the beach and get called a hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so decoupling, I mean, calling someone a hero without acknowledging the mission they were trying to accomplish and whether or not they did accomplish it is not really useful. What veterans need more than congratulations and blind adulation is sound foreign policy and sound veteran policy. And that's what that's what can be provided to them uh, by voters. If this makes sense. Yeah, I've seen in other interviews you've um, you, you don't mince words in, in talking about how you felt like, at least at that time in Iraq, the uh, the Marines the uh, the military was sort of left left out to dry by you know, there was there was no real strategy. There wasn't. I mean, if you look at what the idea was um, in 2003, and this I think this was the stated plan. This was the publicly stated plan for the invasion and occupation of Iraq. It was we're going to invade. We're going to topple the government. We're going to replace its institutions, disband its military. 
Um, and then in six months, it will be a functioning Western democracy like Norway. Um, and to accomplish this, we're going to send in Marines and Army infantry, grunts, 18 to 22-year-olds with rifles who don't speak the language and have been taught maneuver warfare, but have not, don't know anything about building civil institutions. Right? We're going to march as a very small force, invade the country, and then it will just magically become a Western secular democracy. And then six months in, when you realize, oh, that's, that's a total fantasy um, created by people who had, had no conception of the facts on the ground or really didn't know much, didn't know much about Iraq. And then Marines, and, and where I was, there was Marines mostly. But the U.S. military began to adjust. And so, all right, we need now to shift our focus away from maneuver warfare and destroying an enemy army to defeating an insurgency and building the institutions of a state which can permanently defeat the insurgency. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but it happened. But the U.S. military did manage to retool itself over the period of about five years to address the needs of counterinsurgency. But they did it sort of on their own. There was very... The, the military did the best with what it had in Iraq, but it was years late. I mean, those tools that would be used to rebuild a, a functioning nation-state should have been one echelon behind the infantry, uh, like six hours behind them on the march up from Kuwait in, two, in March of 2003. Mm -hmm. And that was a failure not of the military, but of, of, uh, of, the, of the U.S. government. And one of the results, and uh, some have described this as a kind of a horrifying Groundhog Day. You, you know, you, you, you take, so you take a street, you're pushed back, and, and then you take it again, but, uh, and again and again, it repeats and repeats, and in the meantime, you're, you're losing friends. Right, and I think Americans still want, it, want the, um, the good war. They want to think of war um, like, they thought, like they thought of World War II where there's a front line and you move the front line forward a little bit every day, liberating territory that stays liberated until the front line overtakes the enemy capital and taking the enemy, when you take the enemy capital, you thereby win the war. That's not how it is. That's not how it's been. I don't even think that's really how it was in World War II, but that's the narrative America wants to see. But when you're fighting for the acquiescence of a population, you're fighting in and amongst them. And when the enemy's not wearing uniforms and they're, and they're by and large killing you from, from unseen positions in a way that you can't fight back, yeah, it, it becomes like Groundhog Day. Hmm. Uh, that is an apt metaphor. We're going to take a break. When we come back, more with Michael Petrie. Uh, Michael Petrie is out with a, a new novel. It's his debut novel, Fives and Twenty Fives. And it, uh, the three main characters, three narrators, we'll get into talking about them, Lieutenant Donovan, uh, Doc Pleasant, and uh, the Iraqi interpreter, Katev, who uh, the, the men called Dodge, who's perhaps the most interesting uh, character here. And I know, uh, Michael Petrie, one of the things you wanted to do is bring attention to the uh, Iraqi side of this. Uh, we'll talk about that and some some interesting and horrifying details uh, uh, that we heard right in that first passage there from the from the opening of the book. For example, uh, soap chips. 
why, you know, why the, why the uh, planters of the IEDs uh, put soap chips in, and the fact that everybody uh, carries a tourniquet. Some very interesting details here. We'll talk more about this. Michael Petrie, following the break. So the story of David and Goliath. Improbable underdog defeats the powerful favorite, right? Uh, maybe not. Goliath is a sitting duck. He doesn't have a chance. So why do we keep calling David an underdog? I'm Guy Raz. Things you thought you knew that are wrong on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering muesli with fresh fruit, walnuts, and yogurt. Breakfast menu at crumbbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest today is Michael Petrie. He graduated from Louisiana State University. He was a double major in history and creative writing. In 2002, following 9-11, he joined the Marines. He deployed twice to Iraq. Uh, He was a captain there, and um, he left the service in 2010 to get his MBA at Loyola. He lives now in New Orleans. He's out with a debut novel. It's been a critically acclaimed uh, Fives and Twenty Fives is the name of the uh, novel. He says his hope for the book is shining some light in the dark corners of our recent history facilitating reintroduction of families to sons and daughters, and, perhaps most importantly, uh, hopes this story brings greater attention to the suffering of the Iraqi people. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And we have Michael Petrie with us for the uh, remainder of, uh, of the hour. Michael Petrie, there's some, there's some details here that really takes you there as, as much as a reader can go there. A couple stood out to me, and then we heard them right in the passage that you read uh, about 10 minutes ago. Uh, why, the, why the soap chips in, in the bombs? Well, um, the soap chips would cause uh, flames to get here to exposed skin. It was just a, a, the same way you would bury, you, you would put ball bearings or nails and a bomb to create shrapnel. Uh, soap chips would, and paired with jugs of gasoline, would create sort of a napalm-like effect. Hmm. To the point where uh, in 2007, when I was there for my second deployment, anytime you went out on a convoy, you would wear a Nomex flight suit, the way pilots would wear. Uh, the benefit being that that fabric is flame resistant. Uh, you'd also wear Nomex hoods, the way race car drivers do, and uh, gloves. Um, so basically the only part of your body that was not covered in a flame-resistant fabric was your eyes. And over those, you would wear safety glasses or goggles. So you would go out sort of cocooned in uh, flame-resistant fabric. So so insidious, the IEDs had become. Uh, that, <laughs> and this is, this is in sometimes, what, 130-degree heat? Oh, easily. Um, and those Humvees are not air-conditioned, <laughs> or sometimes they were. Wow. Not, sometimes the air-conditioning worked. Uh, and uh, this is on top of, you know, 40 pounds of equipment. Uh, you'd be wearing a flak jacket, uh, body armor vest that had sappy plates. Um, they're ceramic plates meant to catch bullets. Um, so the, the fabric, the vests themselves are layered with Kevlar fabric which will stop a small caliber round or a small piece of shrapnel. 
but a large caliber rifle round or a, a very determined piece of shrapnel would go right through that. So you would wear sappy plates, which weighed, I think, 14 pounds a piece front and back, and then side sappies would be kind of haphazardly strapped on. So you would be, um, you're not climbing over any walls in, this, in that uh, bit of gear. And you'd also wear a tourniquet. Uh, you typically kept it on the left side of your slack jacket up near the shoulder so you could get it with your right hand. Uh, because the, the nature of the wounds that people suffered were, were very often, they were, they were traumatic amputations, which is the way it would end up. Uh, and so you learned by this, I think the second year of the war that you needed to have a tourniquet with you at all times. You needed to know how to put it on yourself uh, to save your own life or the life of the person sitting next to you. Now, what do you, what do you do? <laughs> so you're going out with a tourniquet, you got all this armor on because you know you might get hit. And and often, you know, buddies would would get hit. What do you you have to put that aside? Do you in in your mind? What yes. do you, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, the, yeah, everything we were doing had a purpose, right? We weren't in Iraq getting in. The combat there was not for its own sake. We didn't go there just to have combat because combat's great. The combat was incidental to the larger mission. And the larger missions that I was involved in as someone who was in a logistics battalion were things like road repair, um, uh, resupply of, uh, of, of ground combat forces like the infantry. Um, and then we'd also be doing outreach to local population, things like med caps and dent caps where we'd send out our battalion surgeon and have a basically a medical clinic set up in a small town or our battalion dentist. We'd go out and do a dental clinic in a small Iraqi town. So those are the things that we were trying to achieve. Those are the things that were going to win the war, keeping the highways open for commerce, um, doing outreach to the population and, show, and demonstrating that we were there with their interests in mind. What was not going to win the war and what, what would, in fact, lose it was going and getting in gunfights every day for no good reason. So... All of this armor and this protection on you was really incidental to what you were trying to accomplish long term, um, and which is why I don't—I <laughs> would say anything controversial here—but when you see arguments about who actually shot Bin Laden in the face or who who killed the most people as a sniper, that's all totally insane to me. One, because the argument about which which American sniper killed the most people in Iraq. Are they trying to argue that that individual won the war the most, that individual achieved the most victory? And this is, again, getting back to that convenient war narrative that Americans like to see, which is, oh, we killed, most, we killed the most enemy, therefore we win. Or um, we killed the enemy's um, leader, therefore we win. And in reality, whichever Navy SEAL ha- happened to pull the trigger on bin Laden, um, saying, him saying I was the one who killed bin Laden would be like, Neil Armstrong saying he, he designed and built the Saturn V rocket and uh, <laughs> flew it himself to the moon and meanwhile managed missing control. I mean, it's a huge effort for, for millions of people to put that one individual in a position to pull that trigger. Um, and that's really not where the war is won. The war is won in the opinion of the local population and if, and if a democratic state is established. 
I don't know if I've answered more question than you asked me. Uh, I went on a little bit too uh, long. Uh, no, that's yeah. that's fine. That's fine. Very interesting. Uh, I, uh, what you said there at the end, I wonder what you think about this current state in Iraq, especially the uh, Islamic State advancing. Oh, it's horrifying. Um, especially, I mean, early on when I was watching uh, ISIS uh, roll into Mosul. And Mosul, people should understand, is a city of millions of people. This is, not a, this is not a small, windblown desert town. And I have not been to Mosul. That was not in my area of operations in Iraq. But I know about Mosul, and I have friends who are there. That's a city of millions of people. Um, and the, the idea of, of a band of, of crazy, like, jihadists taking over Mosul would be like, yeah, I, I put that in the same, in my mind, I put that in the same sort of category of impossible things as, ISIS taking Istanbul, Turkey. I mean, it just didn't make sense. And but these smaller towns that you saw in the news, like Hit and Haditha and Ramadi, Fallujah, these are all places I've seen and been. Not all of them, but some of them. And I've seen the people who live there, and they are conservative Muslims, yes, but they are not. They don't. They did not want ISIS's brand of, uh, of theocracy. Um, and we told them to trust us and work with us and that we would prevent that from happening. Um, so you, so seeing it on the news is really hard. There was a, there was a little town in Iraq called Habaniya where there had been a, a Royal Air Force base during the Second World War, um, during the time which Iraq was a, a protectorate of uh, Great Britain. And so... There, had, there was a, a graveyard there, a cemetery, that had fallen in disrepair. A lot of the headstones had, uh, had fallen over. But uh, walking through that graveyard sometimes and seeing all these headstones with the names of British soldiers who'd served and died in Iraq in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, uh, you have to sense, wow, am I this, we're doing this all over again? And I always think, um, I look at the names of the headstones and wonder if these guys had lived long enough uh, to see the promises they they'd made uh, broken, and just in general, coming back, um, you, 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 Lieutenant Donovan, for example, the the opening passage there, uh, he he wakes up with a start with this this nightmare, and uh, and and then you reveal that he has he's self medicated with with beer the night before, and this is something he something he does, um, just to I yeah. guess try to try to escape. From, from these nightmares? Uh, yeah. It's just, uh, that's, that was a common experience. And uh, again, we're dealing with professional people, Marines, who, don't, who wouldn't want to think of themselves as being the type who would self-medicate with beer or, to igno- or, or would acknowledge that that's what they're doing. Um, but when I was in between deployments, um, I, was, I had a roommate who was another Marine lieutenant who was also in between Iraq deployments. This is around the time that I met the woman who had become my wife, and she would fly out from Chicago uh, to visit me over weekends and in weeks when I wasn't in the field. And she would say, hey, you know, you and, you and your roommate both buy a 12-pack of beer on the way home from work every night and drink it. Do you know that? I'd say, uh, really? I didn't know that. Um, and then you realize, oh, I am doing that. So I, I am having trouble sleeping. Uh, and so... Uh, I do try to put myself to sleep with beer. Um, 
so that's a common experience. And the, the nightmare described on that first page is sort of the nightmare that everyone I know of acknowledges having that, you know, I need, they don't see the IED. I have to tell them about it. Um, but again, these are things you deal with and you work through and you move on with your life. We're taking another break. We'll be back with Michael Petrie. He's the author of a uh, novel, Fives and Twenty Fives, based on experiences in Iraq. Uh, Michael Petrie, uh, before the war, uh, before he uh, deployed, he deployed twice to Iraq, uh, was a double major in history and creative writing at LSU. And then after the war, after he uh, left service in 2010, he got his MBA at Loyola, lives in New Orleans, and Fives and Twenty Fives has been getting uh, good reviews um, and uh, we'll talk more about Iraq, Michael Petrie's experiences, and we'll get into talking about a, a couple more of his characters, especially uh, a character that uh, the men called Dodge, the Iraqi interpreter. More following this break. Leonard Bernstein was 71, suffering from emphysema. He began coughing while conducting this concert and couldn't stop. The concert almost came to a halt, but somehow Bernstein controlled his coughing fits and kept going. It was the last piece he ever conducted. Legendary swan songs on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ross Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Another 10 minutes left in the program. Michael Petrie is my guest. He is author of an acclaimed new novel, Fives and Twenty Fives. It's based on experiences in Iraq. Michael Petrie joined the Marines in 2002 in the wake of 9-11, deployed twice to Iraq, and now lives in New Orleans. And we're talking about the novel and about experiences in Iraq. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Mark Petra, I don't want to leave the conversation without talking about uh, the, perhaps the most interesting character here. And I know one of your uh, goals in the novel is to, to, to shine a light on the experiences of the Iraqis. So Dodge, the, the men call him Dodge, uh, before the war, he was uh, finishing his thesis on uh, Huckleberry Finn, Baghdad University, yeah. putting on punk rock shows. So he, he loves American culture, but he's disdainful of what Americans are doing in Iraq. Uh, which is something you did find quite a lot with uh, the young folks, the young, young guys and, 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 uh, and women sometimes as well, Iraqis who were working for you as interpreters. Um, if they spoke English in 2003, it's because they were studying English. And if they were studying English, it was probably because they, they liked America. And they liked American culture. Um, and so there was always that tension with your interpreters, um, that they wanted to like you, and that they were so happy to be around Americans. But when it kind of became clear that we did not have all the answers and that we were sort of flailing, um, and that we were making a real mess of their country, uh, the tensions did rise up. Uh, and in the novel, Katib, uh, before the war, is studying English at Baghdad University, and he's writing his thesis on 
Huckleberry Finn um, uh, for a professor who does not survive. Um, and so he always has that on his mind. He's always working on his thesis on Huck Finn from the Arab point of view. Interesting. Uh, Huck Finn from the Arab point of view. Yeah. Um, in Iraq, I mean, I started, I, was, I thought about Huck Finn a lot when I was in Iraq for some reason. I mean, the war, as I saw it there, my war anyway, and the war of people around me took place within about 100 meters of the road on either side. So it was just a, a war on the highways. And the highways kind of came to, came to resemble rivers. They came to feel like rivers, you know. And each highway had its own personality, its own kind of bombs would be on a certain highway. The whole sort of civilian traffic. Um, and I started thinking about Huck and Jim and how things always went wrong when they beached their raft and ventured off of the river. <laughs> and uh, it was much the same in Iraq. But also the sense of a guy like Khatib, uh, who the Americans know as Dodge because he can't use his real name. Um, he has to make really, really tough choices all of the time. Uh, loyalty to his family, loyalty to his country, uh, but ultimately, you know, loyalty to his humanity. And people will ask me sometimes, because uh, in the novel, Khatib's father is a former Ba'athist minister, so he's been raised in privilege in Baghdad, uh, in the ruling class of, of Saddam's people. But in the, uh, with the American occupation, he has to decide where he's going to be and who he's going to work for. People always ask me, well, whose side is he on? And I say, well, if Khatib is on the side of humanity, he's always trying to make decisions that will lead to the least possible suffering. Like Huck Finn, who always thinks that he's committing a grievous sin by leading his friend Jim to freedom. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, you, before a lot of the chapters, you have uh, inscriptions, uh, quotes from other other books. I was struck by a passage from Huck Finn. I'll I'll just read this here. Huck is taught by the widow Douglas to ignore the past, that not all deceased people have wisdom to share even in sacred texts. And so you quote from Huck Finn, After supper she got out her book, and she learned me about Moses and the bulrushers. I was in a sweat to find out all about him, but by and by she let it out that Moses had been dead a considerable long time. So then I didn't care no more about him, because I don't take no stock in dead people. I thought that was very, yep. very interesting. What, what were you going for there? Well, those those opening sections in the chapters that are from Khatib's point of view, those are all excerpts from his thesis. And while I was, while I was before I really started working on the novel, while I was thinking about who these people were, I wrote just to learn about Khatib. I wrote a considerable portion of his thesis from his point of view, and then later just grabbed those to use them as chapter introductions. Um, but from Khatib's perspective, what that means is that he has to be living in the now. I mean, you lose, he had lost people everywhere. Um, and they're all, there are all sorts of uh, influences trying to pull him back into the past, and he needed to move forward. It's about moving forward despite your loss. And, and loss, obviously, is all around you in a, in a, in a combat zone. Uh, tell me a bit about Doc. Doc has trouble dealing with people he's lost. Doc, Doc does have trouble. Um, so, again, the, the, the novel's written from these three first-person first narrators. Um, Lieutenant Donovan, he was a college boy from Alabama, 
and uh, Doc Pleasant, Lester Pleasant, who was a Navy corpsman uh, assigned to a Marine Corps platoon. Uh, interesting fact a lot of people don't know, the Marine Corps has no medical staff, no medical personnel of their own, so they borrow from the Navy. So a Marine Corps platoon will typically have a naval hospitalman who's assigned to them as a corpsman, as they say, as a medic. And Doc Pleasant is really good at his job, um, in school anyway. And then he gets to a rock and he finds it's very, very hard to save anybody. Uh, and so he start, kind of starts to come apart. And when we meet him, he's back home in Louisiana after his service. He's been uh, given a discharge that's other than honorable uh, for reasons you find out as you read. And uh, he's working at the oil change place where he worked in high school, changing oil and cars. Um, so it's... Yeah, here's the other perspective of the veteran. The veteran does not do quite as well. Yeah. As, I mean, the, the veteran experience kind of makes people and breaks them alternately. You have the guy who gets out, has, uses the GI Bill to great effect, gets his MBA, gets a great job, and there's the guy who, um, who doesn't. He kind of regresses a bit. I'd like to just have uh, about three or four minutes left in the conversation. I'd like to bring it back back home. And uh, cycled back around to something I've, I've been resonating on or with ever since you said it. You, you say that some people sometimes will ask you, did you kill anyone? I wonder what you think is behind that. What, what, are, they, what are they getting? What are they trying to get, get at when they ask you that? I really don't know. That's not a question I would ask anyone in any circumstance. Um, I think... I don't know. I think some people want you to feel guilty that you were in the military. I think some, sometimes there's a hidden agenda there. Sometimes people are just idiots, and that's what they think war is, just killing people. So they want to know if you, they want to know if you were in it, if you saw the combat. And they think that killing someone is the only way to really have seen combat. Um, but in, at its core, asking that question is born of an ignorance of the seriousness of taking another life in those circumstances. Like you can't, you can't ask that question with any and have any sort of understanding of, if you have any understanding at all of the gravity of war and what war does, and and mostly to innocent people. That's the great secret of war: is that. In war, warriors often suffer least. It's the civilians around the war who suffer most. You can't have any appreciation of that and ask that question. And what yeah. about this? We talked a little bit earlier in the, in the program about this disconnect. This, it's a professional military. You say that's, that's a good thing, but that uh, perhaps that exacerbates this disconnect. And, and as you uh, said, but, you know, as a democracy, we all go to war, Right. Right. Um, and I don't think that's the military's pop- responsibility to bridge that gap. Mm, okay. Um, I really don't. The military has its responsibility, which is to fight and win the wars given to it by its civilian leadership. And that's it. And if the civilian leadership, as selected by the, the electorate, um, has created this gap, it's if there's not going to be shared sacrifice on on behalf of um, the population at large when we send our military off into a 
12-year protracted land campaign in Asia on two fronts, there can at least be shared understanding. That's an effort that has to come from individuals. I don't think there's any institutional fix to that. Just a minute left. I want to ask uh, specifically what uh, what is your advice to, uh, you know, say someone like me, I, I encounter you and uh, find out that you're a, a veteran. You said earlier in the program, um, you know, maybe don't call you a hero. That's that's kind of a disconnect. But uh, what 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 do, what do the veterans need? Uh, veterans need to be spoken to and treated like professionals. Uh, they need to be acknowledged as professionals. And the cart. Yeah. Talk to them like professionals, not like victims. Well, the uh, book's very interesting. Um, it's, it's getting uh, good reviews, so congratulations on that. Fives and Twenty Fives, the debut novel from Michael Petrie, uh, really takes you uh, into the experience. Uh, Michael Petrie is a graduate of LSU. Uh, he also has his MBA from Loyola, lives in New Orleans. Uh, is there an, another book uh, coming, Michael Petrie? Hopefully, uh, but I think I'm done writing about Iraq for now. Okay, so it'll be on a different subject. Hopefully, yeah. All right, well, we'll look for that. Michael Petrie, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Join us, of course, uh, tomorrow, and uh, Happy New Year from all of us here at uh, Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Early settlers to the landscape we know as Capitol Reef National Park in South Central Utah planted cherry, apricot, peach, pear, apple, and walnut trees as a cash crop for survival along the Fremont River bottoms. Visitors today are often surprised by the fruit trees in light of the surrounding desert climate, and campers can even pick apples and peaches from their campsites in the orchards. But the green fields and fruit trees also attract deer, marmots, and other small critters which are easy to spot and are comfortable with humans in their environment. Though the deer roam free in the tall grass between apple trees, there are species that are a bit more dangerous lurking nearby. Mountain lions and black bears skillfully stalk around this historic district of Fruta without being seen. Mountain lions have even been spotted within a half mile of the popular campground. Yet little is known about the species within the confines of Capitol Reef. With so many questions unanswered about the predator and prey relationship in the unique landscape, the park has received a Disney Nature Impact Grant to enlighten us. Lori Rome, the park's chief of interpretation, says, We're setting up 10 to 20 infrared motion-detected camera traps in surrounding areas. This is a non-invasive way to learn basic information about the species. These cameras will provide useful evidence and reveal the patterns of the quiet predators in the park. The public will be engaged through a citizen science project using social media and public interpretive programming, for example, helping to survey deer populations. If you've seen Disney Nature's movie Bears, you too help contribute to the Disney Nature Impact Grants program. Fourteen national parks are receiving funding via proceeds from the movie. Disney Nature has pledged a contribution to the National Park Foundation, the official charity of America's national parks, through the Disney Worldwide Conservation Fund for each person who saw the film during its first week in theaters. This type of support helps preserve and protect Capitol Reef and the rest of the national park system. The Disney Nature Impact Grant enables parks to conduct much needed conservation projects such as studying mountain lions at Capitol Reef. Each park selected to receive a grant through this program had to demonstrate a clear need for the money 
and how it would make a profound difference in habitat restoration, wildlife protection, or conservation research. With this assistance, we should be able to understand predators' actions in Capitol Reef National Park. For National Parks Traveler, I'm Patrick Cote. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc and the next Zorba Pastor on your health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for chicken and pepper stew. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on your health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time is just about 10 o'clock, and up next we have the TED Radio Hour.